0: Hello, it's Paul Scott here with my usual weekly recap on small caps and a bit of macro commentary, usually as well. So I write the uh, small cap value reports on Stockopedia.com. I've been doing that for ten years now. Prior to that, for people who don't know me, um, well, I've been a professional investor now for twenty years in total, and prior to that, I spent eight years as CFO of a ladies' wear retailer with about 150 shops. And I trained originally as a chartered accountant, but me being me, I flunked my finals exams. I never do things uh, in the the conventional way. (laughs) Anyway, people seem to like these podcasts. I haven't really publicised them anywhere, but we're getting about 500 listens, mainly through Apple Podcasts and other podcast platforms. There's a glitch with Google that I need to sort out at some point, plus probably about a similar number listening directly on my website. So quality small caps dot uh, so it's it's worth me doing if if a, a thousand odd people listen each week it's worth doing isn't it so and i quite enjoy doing them actually it's a nice way to recap on the week and to refocus on the most interesting things that have happened why are we even bothering with uk small caps you might say given how how terrible the market has been for the last year well i think it's because uh there's there's tremendous value emerging and i think um There are some pretty good companies out there in in UK small caps. I would say maybe only a quarter of the listed companies are any good. But um, a, a lot of them are flying under the radar and you've just got forced or... Uh, despondent selling going on with some of these things and this is throwing up some great bargains remember this year's or next year's earnings isn't all you're buying you're buying all the earnings in perpetuity and uh, once profits start to recover you know that's when we go into the next bull market so I think people who are brave or stupid enough to buy at the moment are going to be pretty smug in a year or two's time possibly but we don't know do we there's also a strong argument for holding back some cash. And I know a lot of people, myself included, uh, are really building a buy list, a watch list, maybe taking some small initial positions, but holding back to wait to see how the macro picture unfolds. But if you wait till everything's sorted out, of course, the bull market will have come and gone. That's the point, isn't it? The market, in my experience, you know, starts to anticipate improvements well before they actually happen. So it's, it's really worthwhile, I think, um, looking at uh, UK small caps and building up those watch lists. As always with my stuff, it's absolutely never financial advice or recommendations. You know, our whole ethos at Stockopedia is on people doing their own research, taking responsibility for your own investment decisions. So my and Graham's quick reviews each day on small cap results and trading updates are are just that. They're a quick review. We give an opinion as well, but it's really then to hand them over to you to do proper in-depth research. We're not tipsters and, um, you know, D-Y-O-R, as they say, do your own research. Like everyone talking about small caps or any shares, we get some right and we get some wrong because nobody can predict the future with certainty. Launching into the individual companies then. On Monday I looked at Tortilla, ticker M-E-X. This is a rapidly expanding chain of uh, burrito Mexican-style restaurants. The product's very good. I like them. I've mystery shopped them. Several times and found it. I've got some reservations about the format, but I won't go into that now. Now, the interim results um, were basically around break even. And there was quite a bad profit warning for H2 as well buried in the Outlook comments. Not really explicitly stated that it was quite a nasty profit warning, which I didn't like. Um, But we then had to look at the broker updates to see that they were absolutely slashing profitability for 2022 and 2023 to little above break-even. Now, that is a major change in the outlook for the company. Um, And it's caused by a number of factors. They're they're actually delivering good like-for-like sales against pre-pandemic. But, of course, the costs are going up, aren't they? Pre-pandemic numbers we're now comparing against are are 2019. So that's three years ago. And in that time, staff wages have gone up a lot. Obviously, energy costs have, have soared and um, protein, as they say, effectively meat costs, uh, Tortilla said, I think we're up 40%. So really, you've got a business that's rapidly expanding, it's got 84 sites, and it's only trading around break-even. Now, that is a big deterioration in the investment case for this share, I'm afraid. So I've really gone pretty cold on Tortilla. I was quite keen because I liked the format. But if they can't make money when they're getting sites on dirt cheap rents, then as a problem and i don't particularly want to bet on f- costs in future declining which um okay they might do as supply chains improve but do you see wages cost declining anytime soon i certainly don't so yeah tortilla a bit disappointed in that one so i'm less keen than i well i'm not keen at all now on that one uh now uh, 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 oh what's it called spectra systems i nearly <laughs> said sepsis <laughs> Spectra Systems, S-P-S-Y. Now we like this one a lot at the Small Cap Value Reports and an interesting update came out about a contract adjustment and WH Island raised the forecast earnings again. Now this share is, is, is a very interesting specialist niche business. I think it's worth having a look at that one and it pays out nearly all its earnings in dividends as well so you've got a very good dividend yield. I I like uh, Spectra Systems. Don't hold it personally, but it's on my watch list of possible future buys. Now, another one I liked on Monday was Renew Holdings, RNWH. Now, i followed this business for years and years, and management have just executed so well. They started off with a really ropey balance sheet, and they started doing all these acquisitions and paying small dividends with a really low margin but they've they've somehow made this work and they've got the margins up considerably over the years they've not come a cropper despite that that wobbly balance sheet which still isn't great but it's a much bigger business now and I think the public sector work, they get paid quite promptly. So it seems to be able to function fine with a, what I would consider a pretty weak balance sheet. Once you take off the intangibles, it's, it's negative net tangible asset value. Not ideal. It only means you haven't got a cushion there if something serious were to go wrong. But I absolutely cannot fault Renew Holdings for its performance over the last five to ten years or so. Uh, a particular feature I like about it is that they're managing their supply chain and their costs incredibly well. And this is really what we're looking for right now. Businesses that can are not putting out profit warnings because they say, oh, you know, we didn't anticipate all these higher costs. That's no good at all. And I think it just shows weak management or a weak business model. Whereas renew holdings just confidently say we're marginally ahead of um, expectations and we're managing all the, the supply chain and the costs. And it's really about, how with this type of business, it's really all about how the contracts were originally set up. You could have ticking time bombs generally with businesses that do larger contract business if you don't know what the, those contract terms are and if they don't allow for passing on additional costs. Whereas, and that's not really something that's actually ever disclosed in financial statements until something either goes wrong or they trade fine. You know, that's when you find out if they've set the contracts up well or not. And Renew clearly have, because they're they're trading fine. It's on a P of about ten. I think there's a limited upside on Renew because that type of sector never really commands a high PE. But it's dropped a lot from the peak um, last year, and i i certainly think at the current level I think Renew is a possible possible long term buy for my watch list. Now, Graham looked at SRT. Nice to see that one producing some decent numbers after many, many years of sort of on-off lumping, contract lumpiness. But as Graham concluded, you know, one swallow doesn't make a summer. So I think the business has still got a lot to prove, but it's good to see it um, turning in a good half year. Graham also looked at Argentex, a Forex business. Now, he looked at Peel Hunt. Obviously, that's struggling at the moment, as all the brokers are, because you know, uh, that there's no appetite for IPOs at the moment. And, you know, I think they killed the golden goose to a certain extent with all these absolutely rubbish overpriced IPOs, particularly in 2021, but also in 2020. And I think fund managers, you know, fool me once and all that sort of business probably are not going to be uh, interested in IPOs for quite some time. And you can't really blame them, can you? The one interesting, and Peel Hunt, for God's sake, get some research out there to private investors. Now, I I do appreciate that MIFID um, has caused, uh, put a spanner in the works because uh, Peel Hunt charged for their research. So obviously they don't then want to give it away free to private investors. I get that. But, you know, they could do what some of the other uh, uh, mid-sized brokers do and just issue the front page and keep the the detailed research for fee-paying clients or just selectively put out some of the research. Uh, where there's no institutional interest in the shares at all. You know, they could they could put some research out, but they resolutely refused to do it, and they they were not interested in getting research out before Mifid as well. So that's my main gripe with Peel Hunt. Uh, but you know, it's got to be said their research is fantastic. But yeah, and I appreciate it. it costs a lot of money to pay people to produce such good research. Uh, now they've got this thing called Rex, which R E X, which is some sort of platform to help private investors get involved in fundraisings. That sounds really, really interesting. I was listening to Mello um, earlier this week, uh, where uh, the chap from Peel Hunt, I think it was, or from Rex, I don't know if it's a separate organisation or not, was talking about this. But I hate to admit this, um, I nodded off during the presentation, (laughs) which is the problem with webinars, isn't it? Um, So I must uh, find out some more about that. Okay, now Tuesday... Now, I had a bit of an off day Tuesday, couldn't really uh, muster any motivation to do anything, unfortunately. Sorry about that. Graham held the fort and Megan, and they looked at character group CCT. I think that put out a profit warning, but it's quite an interesting business and well-financed toys company. Now, Watkin Jones, WJJ. Gee, that has now absolutely plummeted. It's only 90 pence. I've always liked that business. I like the business model. So I'm going to have a fresh look at that myself. Because um, it forward sells things like um, student accommodation blocks. And what's the other thing? Oh, buy to rent. So it's it builds blocks of flats designed primarily for or I think entirely actually for rental private rental and it then forward sells the development to an institutional investor who wants yields. Now the obvious problem with that is now interest rates um and, and gilts and so on have shot up. You, you know there are, institutions can get can get yields in in other ways and of course shares have plummeted as well. Everything's dropped, hasn't it? So that might make it more difficult for Watkin jones to make such big margins as it has done in the last few years, which looks to some extent at least as if it was fuelled by zero interest rates. So the question mark over WJG, Watkin jones is has the business model now really um, taken a downturn? It's uh, It doesn't have exposure to actually owning the properties, which is very good, because it forward sells them. So I do like this business model, but I need to have a closer look at it. Now, uh, Graham also looked at NMRT, this this bizarre thing, uh, National Milk Records. Why is it post uh, listed? No idea. Now, Wednesday... I did uh, some macro commentary on Wednesday on Stockopedia. Now, this was intended to be a podcast last weekend, but I was just too tired to do it, and there was so much material. it was. Be- I was better off just writing it all down, and readers seem to quite like that. So see Wednesday's report for my latest macro commentary. Uh... Virtue Motors, VTU, I don't currently hold because, as I've mentioned before, I capitulated on my Spreadex account where I held a lot of um, small cap, smallish positions. I just, you know, it was multiplying the losses four or five fold and you just got to draw a line under it at some point. But I certainly want to buy back into Virtue at some stage. Now, what a cock up. I reviewed the wrong announcement. There was some glitch with the news feed. Uh, And I didn't notice the date on the announcement and I reviewed, did a whole section, which took about an hour and a half, uh, writing up a trading update that I'd previously reviewed in September and started arguing with the readers about whether it was ahead of expectations or not and telling them that they were wrong. Then the penny dropped. I'd reviewed the wrong bloomin' announcement. So I had to to just delete that, apologise to everybody and then review the interims from scratch. So that was the whole of Wednesday morning taken up. Never mind, we all make mistakes, and uh, you just apologise and fix it, don't you, which is what I did. Anyway, the interims from Virtue Motors were good, VTU this is. Now, they previously sort of started to get a bit more cautious for obvious reasons. We know that they had a boom year in 2021, and that was a one-off, and the forecasts reflect that, that that earnings will be back down to something nearer to normal this year. Um, But they actually have raised the H2 outlook, saying that the government... Uh, they had a strong September and they said that the government measures of, of capping energy bills and the reduction in NI um, have, you know, given things that are going to give things a nice boost in H2. So that was uh, very pleasing. Remember as well that virtue is unique in the sector in actually having very, very in, in having net tangible asset value that's considerably more than the share price. Uh, plenty of other car dealers have got lots of freeholds, but I haven't seen any other where the net tangible asset value is actually way above the share price. So you're 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 getting a whole bunch of property in for free with this with this share, which is very appealing. I think it'll be a takeover target. It's only a matter of time. The only thing I would say is that obviously commercial property in a higher interest rate environment has dropped in value. Uh, I don't think Virtue re- revalues its properties. I think they're in the books at cost. Might be worth checking that, uh, but there may not be as much upside on the property valuations as we originally thought. Okay, so but I, th- I think virtue looks very, very good value even once you allow for all the uh, negative known factors. This move to agency model as well with the car dealers is interesting. Virtue says Mercedes is the first brand moving to an agency model from uh, 1st of January, I think, 2023. Now, what this seems to involve, I did a bit of Googling on it, it seems to involve uh, the manufacturers setting the price of new cars at a fixed level, so there's no haggling at branch level, uh, and dealers don't have any um, ability to sort of adjust those prices or give away. But but I reckon they'll find a way around that. And obviously, it's the trade-in side of it which will still be quite important for for dealers. And bear in mind, if you look at uh, Virtue's interim results, um, the biggest profit earner for these franchise car dealers is after sales, which is servicing, repairs, warranty work. That's where they're actually making, um, I think, nearly half of their gross margin. So you could view the new car sales as really a feeder where they make very little margin to then generate a three to five year stream of revenues from after sales. So that's quite interesting. And they're very good at used sales as well. Um, And I think you'll probably see some of these... uh, uh, these new so-called challenger car second-hand car dealers fall by the wayside because you look at their financial performance you know they've had all this venture capital cash to splurge on on tv ads and then in a lot of cases they're now uh retrenching so less competition going forward i think is quite likely so yeah virtue i think is very very good as a nice safe value share now i also looked at on wednesday tops tiles t P T is it? I think T O P T can't remember. Tops Tiles. Now this came out with a good trading update. I was I was actually quite surprised. They said they're. Trading, I think it's a September year end, at the top end, they had a good Q4, they're trading at the top end of market expectations. So about £15 million profit. Isn't it interesting how some companies are saying, oh, there's a sharp turn town, consumers are uh, are drawing in the horns and so on, whilst others seem to be doing fine. So I think we're really seeing... The market sought the wheat from the chaff at the moment. Uh, It's top styles. I looked at the balance sheet. It's got net cash. Uh, Very good dividend yield as well. I think that looks good value. It's obviously fallen a lot. The big unknown is how does it trade for the next year or so. Um, But it's interesting that I think 60% of their revenues now are trade buyers. Obviously, those are recurring buyers. And another interesting aspect was that the like-for-like sales against pre-pandemic were good and were boosted heavily by store closures. So what what I mean by that is they've closed underperforming sites and a lot of those customers are then shifting to the nearest uh, existing Topstiles site. Well, I like that. That says to me that customers are seeking out Topstiles because they must like the product and the prices. So I think Topstiles... I would say uh, yes. That's gone on my on my watch list as a maybe a, a tentative buy at some stage. Graham looked at, on Wednesday. Looked at PCF, a tiny challenger bank that looks in, it, like it's in a complete mess. And also he looked at uh, uh, Strix, which has never interested me. Kettle K E T L that one. Uh, now Thursday, right? Big profit warning from uh, and Motorpoint. Another dealer but this is a different business model MOTR This now Motorpoint uh, is, is a, a small number of large out of town car supermarkets it specialises in nearly new cars, um, very low margins, um, low prices uh, car supermarkets I think are a great way to buy second hand cars now it's always had a tiny margin and it's going for growth, opening lots of new sites and revenues I think are heading for about 2 billion but the trouble is, it's not making any money. Uh, the forecasts have been absolutely slashed. The uh, broker f- dropped the forecast by 50 to 60 percent. Now, I thought, because this is what normally happens at the moment, when you see a profit downgrade of 50 to 60%, you normally see the share price drop by 50 to 60%. So I was anticipating, I wrote up my section on this before 8am, I was really anticipating that the share price would absolutely crash. But it didn't. It only dropped to about 15%, which I think is really surprising. It just goes to show, doesn't it, you just don't know how shareholders are going to react. And I think with Motorpoint, it's got quite a lot of um, American um, shareholders who are really interested in growth, not short-term profits. So that might be why that didn't fall as much as expected. Now, on Thursday, we have a mystery share. Sorry, no jingle today. Now, this one is just for Stockopedia subscribers. So have a look at Thursday's report. It's a soundly financed business that I think has possibly bottomed out and it said that it was trading ahead of expectations. And it's got a very good balance sheet. So have a look at Thursday's report for the mystery share. Now, I did a CEO interview on Thursday. I interviewed the CEO and CFO, actually, of S3, the, the staffing company, which um, does contractors in science, technology... What's the E? Uh, something and mathematics. Uh, anyway, um I really like this company. I only interview CEOs if I think there's a buying opportunity in the shares. So I reach out to the companies that I specifically want to interview. I don't charge a fee. Um, I probably could, but I think you—you know—for me personally, I want to be totally independent. So, um, you know, and it's really just uh, something I—I I like doing, and as an additional service for for you guys. So. It's not really a commercial activity. Uh, Yeah, I thought the interview went really, really well. Lots of very uh, interesting points about the business model, which I think is a lot more resilient than I realised. And also, uh, they've got quite good uh, repeating revenues with these. They mainly do contractors rather than permanent placements. So the contractors typically do a sort of nine-month IT contract or something, or 12-month, and then when that's finished, they come back to S3 and say, right, what's the next project? Um, And the the margins are good and are going up. And um, it all came across really positively, I have to say. And in the summary at the end, the CEO is really upbeat about the prospects. And you can buy this on a PE of about nine with a decent 4% dividend yield. Uh, Fantastic balance sheet with net cash, whereas a lot of staffing companies have uh, net debt. So, yeah, I think S3 looks really good. Uh, I've no idea what the share price will do and you know um obviously if we go into a recession um it it's uh, i don't think it's going to struggle they're saying that actually they're not that worried about inflation and their cost base is completely flexible uh, sorry did i say inflation i meant um, a recession so i think it should be pretty resilient even if we do get a recession and it's international remember uh, the main market is germany and surrounding countries the u.s um, the Far East, the UK and the Netherlands. I think those are the the big uh, markets. So nice geographic spread, nice foreign exchange spread. So, yeah, S3, I remain um, very positive on that one. Again, as a long-term thing. I'm not saying the price now should suddenly shoot up. I just think it's a good uh, long-term business. Now, Graham looked at CMC Markets, the spread bedding company, ECHO, ECK, I think the ticker is there, and Volution. Again, I don't like to speak for Graham, so his sections, if you're interested in those, just, you know, go to the Stockopedia report on that day. So that was Thursday. Right, now, Friday. We got two mystery shares on Friday. So have a look at Friday's report if you're a subscriber. Both are resilient companies that are trading all right and look cheap. Um, So Friday's report, have a look at that. Now, the readers, I try to do reader requests if... They uh, put a comment up saying, oh, Paul, could you have a look at this, that or the other share? But you need to tell me why. It's no good saying, oh, I'd like you to look at this, please. Uh, uh, that doesn't, you know, I, I, give, give me a teaser. Tell me what what you think is good at it and wh- why I should look at it. And quite often, actually, we find good shares doing, uh, doing this. The readers actually flag them up. Give me a synopsis of why they think it's good. I then look at it and say, oh, yeah, actually, this is very good. Uh, and we had one of those on Friday, which was Marshall's. The um aggregates, I think that's the word company they have they have some um quarries and they make all sorts of things from the quarried materials and they also bought did a major acquisition earlier this year of uh oh hell, what are they called? I've you know, I've gone blank, can't remember the name of it. Um Oh, it's a roofing company, anyway, and they paid over £500 million for it. I am slightly worried they possibly overpaid. So I went through the terms of the acquisition acquisition, and found out that it was about a third funded by an equity raise, a placing, at a much higher price than now, um, about a third by debt and about a third by consideration shares to the vendors. Now, that obviously means that the people who bought the placing shares and the people who got the consideration shares have taken a bath um, and the level of debt, I think, at Marshalls is actually OK. So my I don't think it particularly matters that they possibly overpaid for um, this big acquisition. I think it looks pretty much all right. Um, so, yeah, Marshalls looks interesting. I think that's a good quality business. I'm not ready to buy yet, but again, I'm happy to put that one on my watch list. I looked at Superdry. Uh, results, I think it was for april twenty two is that right anyway, it was better than I expected. I did have a small position in this, but I capitulated with all the other things I capitulated on recently, and it looks like I might have sold pretty much at the bottom. It happens sod's law. The only thing was I thought, well, with it being a mid market brand that's really very pricey for what it is, I think um Management seemed to think the product's good value. It isn't. It's overpriced. Um, but Julian Dunkerton, the founders, come back and is really kicking ass, I think, and getting the product and strategy straightened out after a disastrous uh, period of letting other people run it for him, which just didn't work. They didn't know what they were doing. I think it was Ewan Sutherland who's running Saga now. Uh, anyway... Um, These super dry figures were better than I expected. A couple of reservations I've got with it. The bank facilities are coming up for renewal in January 2023. And they did put a material uncertainty uh, statement in the going concern note about this. The business needs those bank facilities. But, so this is a material risk. If the bank don't play ball and don't renew those facilities at an adequate level, that would leave the business in dire straits and needing to do an emergency placing but I think that's actually quite a low probability outcome. The reason I say that is because the, um, the it's asset back lending, which is the wholesale debtor book, the receivables book, I think is over £100 million because, of course, Superdry uh, wholesales internationally as well as retailing. So you can secure bank debt against that, and uh, that would make the, a bank much more prepared to lend. Plus the trading performance of Superdry, it's now back in profit. Uh, and banks like lending to profitable companies and I think the balance sheet at Superdry is also distorted by the huge deficit on the leasehold IFRS 16 entries which are nonsense they shouldn't be on the balance sheet at all so once you scrub those out the balance sheet actually looks okay Um, and banks love seasonal lending and with Superdry it pays the debt off after Christmas uh, and in the spring, which, again, banks like. So I'd be very surprised if Super Dry is not able to refinance that bank debt. So I think there's probably a 10% or less risk that uh, the bank could um, withdraw funding. So I wouldn't worry too much about that. But you never know, do you? This is the trouble with these financially stretched or distressed type businesses. Every now and again something goes hideously wrong and the bank just pull out but it is rare and i think it's unlikely with super dry actually um now oh the other thing with super dry is ignore the eps figures they were distorted by a heavily uh heavily flattering negative tax charge which i think related to deferred tax so ignore that the broker forecasts um I think are forecasting about 15p earnings per share in the current year. So that puts the P on about seven or eight, which given the consumer outlook probably is about right for now. But I think if Dunkerton can really keep going strongly with this brand reset, as he calls it, and doing less markdowns, they do still do markdowns, but it's on the, on the website, they're trying not to do them in store. um, I think if they can they, they it's all about getting the product right isn't it if you're a brand like Superdry the product has to be a must have for the customer you, you know you can't get away with just doing me too type products it's got to be unique and the customers have got to love it and I think there's signs that Superdry is getting its mojo back so I I actually as a speculative thing I think I'd probably be inclined to I'm putting Superdry on my on my watch stroke buy list I think I'm probably Happy to dip my toe back into that because the results were, were a lot better than I was expecting. I also looked at n Brown Oof, I just don't like the business model there um, it's really back down to trading barely above break even after the internet boom has has been and gone and this model of it's a hybrid between a, a, an e-commerce retail business and 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 uh, a high cost high default loan company, so a bank effectively that's lending money to people that they know that quite a high percentage of them won't be able to pay it back, which I just think is an awful model. Uh, You know, and given that we've got a huge consumer squeeze going on, that sort of lower echelon of people, if you like, who struggle and who are prepared to take on high cost debt, I mean, the default rates are bound to go up, aren't they? So I can see why some people like it, because at face value, the balance sheet looks very strong. But you just don't really know how much is in that debtor book, do you? How much of that is going to be collected? I appreciate they make a, a large provision against it, but it could need a much, much bigger provision. We don't know. You've also got this alliance uh, litigation going on. They've provided for about £25 million for that already. But the gross claim is about £66 million. The notes to the account reveal. And there's no change on that. Um, quite a big uncertainty. I think that's related to PPI claims. On the upside, the controlling family maybe might just decide, you know what, let's just take it private. So you could get a takeover bid coming for M. Brown. But at what price? You know, Are they going to be particularly generous if they do decide to buy it? I don't know. For me, I got stung, very, very nearly stung, actually. I bailed out two weeks before it went bust on Studio Retail, which had the same business model, basically. Now, Studio Retail's balance sheet wasn't as strong as N. Brown's, but on the face of it, you know, it seemed to have this huge receivables book, so why would the bank pull out or whatever? Uh, but it turned out that the figures were not um, were not true. They were fiddling the figures, basically, uh, I think, because, you know, shareholders refused to refinance it, and it turned out it had a funding gap of £100 million that it hadn't uh, revealed to the stock market. So... You know, these very high receivables uh, balances uh, can ha- can hide a multitude of sins. Now, N. Brown might be squeaky clean, but we don't know, do we? Without actually being in the business and knowing what's going on, you don't know what's in that receivables book. So it's not for me. But I do understand why some people like it and think it's cheap, because it's trading at a huge discount to net tangible asset value, but it doesn't actually make any money, any, any profit. Um, so... I don't like it. I've been following all the news about the housing market quite closely, and it really annoys me the way the media report this and other uh, uh, issues we're having in the UK at the moment. Because they all announce this as if it—they're so parochial. They—they—they they, they report on these things as if they're uniquely British problems, and because of something that Liz Truss has said or quasi uh Done. I mean, admittedly, there were presentational issues with what they did, for sure. But yeah, it just causes a blip in for a few for a few days. That's that's quickly snuffed out. The issues that we're facing are international, and I wish um, the media would 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 get with this because, you know, mortgage rates in Britain are shooting up because they're going up in America. That's the problem, and the American housing market is already softening, and they're talking about considerable drops in property. Uh, prices in America which you would expect when mortgages become much more expensive and the same things happening here because it's driven by international flows of money. Now um, obviously we're seeing on the media here that uh, five-year fixes have shot up. I hope people did refinance your mortgages a few months ago when I was shouting for the rooftops that uh, five-year fixes didn't make any sense at all they were far too low and there was an, a window of opportunity of several months to, to refinance so i really hope those of you that have mortgages uh, did so it's too late now i think i mean the fixed rates uh, i've i've been um you know looking it up on comparison websites and so on and through and asking through a mortgage broker and um <clears throat> Five-year fixes, I think, are currently about 5.5%. So why on earth anyone would fix at that level? I, I do not know. It's always a gamble, isn't it, when you're getting a mortgage. We're in the process of remortgaging uh, a property in my, my London household. And, um, you know, I'm I'm helping on that process. And they, uh, you know, the, the, the broker is saying, oh, you know, lock in now for a five-and-a-half-year fix for five years. And I'm saying, no, I think that's crackers. So instead we've actually looked at discounted rates and uh the interesting thing is the standard variable rate as of 2 days ago that we were quoted for a particular I think it was Newbury Building Society that came out cheapest their standard variable rate's currently 4% which is not too bad uh and you can get a 3 year discounted mortgage with 2% off so The actual rate you would pay for the next three years would be 2%, which involved only a very small increase in monthly payment from the uh, existing deal we're on, which is a a two-year fix, I think, that's going to end uh, middle of next year. So we were just really testing the market to see what's out there. So I suspect a lot of people who are moving or remortgaging might switch from fixed rates to discounted rates. Now, it does, of course mean you haven't got that, that cap on things, you know, so it, it, it could turn out to be very ugly if interest rates go um, ballistic, so you wouldn't obviously take a a discounted mortgage rate um, if you were stretched and you couldn't afford a sh- uh, a, a, maybe a year's worth of very high payments. Um so uh, I thought this was an, an interesting um, point to make, that it might not necessarily stall the housing market completely, which is what the media are suggesting, because actually discounted mortgages are still available and are still uh, quite cheap. So, uh, But I think generally, certainly looking at builders and estate agents... Those shares are not looking good, are they? And I've just had a look on the Stockopedia stock reports for Taylor Wimpey and um, the larger builders, Barrett and Persimmon. And with all three, the broker earnings forecasts for 2023 have started to really tumble um, in the last. They started to fall in July. So you know that's beginning to feed through and it seems to me that it's probably not a good idea to start start buying shares when a fairly steep earnings downgrade cycle has just started even though obviously the share prices have crashed on a lot of these builders and they and and it's worth bearing in mind they now have really strong balance sheets which they not had in previous recessions certainly in my the 25 years i've been investing builders you know are on the go on the brink of going under when the recessions start but that's because they had gearing and that and their asset values sharply declined and their profits disappeared well this time round, it really is different because these builders have immensely strong balance sheets they're currently trading well below tangible book value so they're already cheap even in a downturn but I, sadly, I I think I'm going to have to hold fire on buying. I was looking at M um, J Gleason, but I think um, even though the, the 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 valuation looks compelling, I think um, the current likelihood of a of a of a downturn in the housing market it really probably makes me want to put that on hold rather than uh, pushing the button on it. Turning to the estate agents as well, the two that I follow in particular, my favourite is Belvoir, BLV, uh, I don't hold any of these shares personally, but it's on my watch list. Now the other interesting thing with Belvoir is it shouldn't be that affected by a slowdown in the housing market, because um, uh, 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 the, it's, a, it's a lettings business primarily, and also it makes money from remortgaging and so on, it's not particularly heavily dependent on housing transactions and I think there was a decent direct-to-buy as well quite recently in Belvoir, which is encouraging. It's about 2 pounds six p at the moment. I think that's a nice level where you'll get a 4.5% dividend yield, P of 11, and it's a resilient business. This is the key thing. So it should do fine even in a housing market downturn, but it might just get sucked down along with everything else. Um you know, people tend to sell and ask questions later, don't they? So even though I like it, I I'm not sure I would necessarily take the plunge just yet, given how much the, the the macro picture has deteriorated recently. In a similar vein, Foxton's FOXT, that's also dropped quite a long way back. It's only thirty-one pence now, uh valuing it at ninety-six million. That's also on a forward PE of eleven, and you get a three percent yield there. Now um uh, again I think uh, Foxton's has pivoted quite strongly towards the lettings side of things it's made some acquisitions in the last couple of years of letting businesses and lettings uh, books so I think um, the share price there could overreact on the downside and at some point that might be a nice buy again probably not the right time in my view given you know the deluge of bad news and let's just see if the but stockopedia has got this fantastic little chart on the stock report that shows you the trend of earning broker earnings forecasts over the last two years. And I always look at that. And actually, in Foxton's case, the broker forecasts haven't been downgraded yet. So that says to me mm, maybe uh, the forecasts uh, might be a little bit too high. So for that reason, I'm probably not going to uh, push the button on Foxton's, but it, it's going on my watch list. I've been listening to a lot of podcasts uh, this week, actually, um, just to sort of get general background, macro information. I love listening to all sorts of different views and just putting it all together in my head and seeing if I can make sense of it all. And uh, I discovered a very interesting um, podcast from Zeus Capital, and it's it's hosted by Nick Searle, who I've met. He's great fun. And um, hi, Nick, if you're listening. And uh, it's it's called A Different Perspective and it's available on the podcast platforms. I think it's very interesting. He interviews all sorts of uh, people with a finance and business background and kind of drills into the personal and career aspects of them. And uh, uh, he's just interviewed Hugh Hendry, the famous... Um, hedge fund manager who worked with uh, Odie, Crispin Odie. That's quite interesting. And I was uh, also, I enjoyed the interview with, where is it? I think it was, it was, funny enough, it was the CEO of um, Watkin Jones, which we talked about earlier. Uh, I'm scrolling through the page, I can't find it. It's always the way, isn't it? Now, this is very interesting. He's an ex-army man, went to Sandhurst and so on. And he sort of talks about, how that interact here we are uh Richard Simpson CEO of Watkin Jones and that came out actually shortly before their profit warning um but he sounds a really interesting grounded chap so I thought that was yeah very interesting and I learnt more about Watkin Jones as well uh from that podcast so yeah a different perspective by Nick Searle is a good podcast to listen to Now, as for guilt yields, and again, these are not topics that I'm expert in, I'm just a generalist, but we saw... Uh, An unusual spike up in in UK gilt yields and the Bank of England briefly intervened, only used a tiny fraction of its available firepower and it pulled the markets back to where it wanted them to be. So this is the thing with gilt yields, you know, and treasury yields, whatever. Central banks can set them at whatever level level they like. I listened to a very interesting podcast all about Japan. I think it was either Money Week or The Economist podcast. And Japan is currently still running um, negative interest rates. And they've been doing vast amounts of QE now for donkey's years. And debt to GDP is off the scale, what, 260% or something. Um, although the yen is coming under pressure, but at which you know, conventionally you would say that would cause inflation. Well, apparently inflation in Japan is only about 2%. So the Japanese are kind of doing their own thing, and it seems to be working. Uh, so, whereas well, Britain obviously just follows the US. And... The interesting thing is, if you compare UK gilts with US Treasuries, the yields are very, very similar. So this idea that UK is somehow, you know, markets are saying it's terrible, it's just rubbish. Basically, the Bank of England can set the gilt yields at whatever it wants, depending on how much QE it decides to do. And I think the idea of raising interest rates and then simultaneously stopping QE, I, I really think is a big policy error in the US. And the UK is just, you know, essentially has to follow what the US is doing. Otherwise, our our currency collapses. And talking about currency, you know, the UK currency is down a very similar percentage to the euro against the dollar. So, again, all the press talk and market commentator talk about how the pound is so weak and whatever. It's not. It's the dollar's strong. When I worked out the figures a few days ago, where is it? The pound was down 17%. Here we are, 16.8% against the dollar uh, versus one year earlier, and the euro was down 15.3% so against the dollar. So 15.3 for the euro, 16.8 for the pound. It's the same ballpark. So you know this again, all this blather about the UK being in a terrible position because. Quasi-Quartan upset everybody briefly. You know, it doesn't stand up to scrutiny, I'm afraid. And also, the, these unfunded tax cuts are not tax cuts. They're simply cancelling planned tax rises. So corporation tax hasn't gone up... Uh, sorry, gone down from 25% to 19%. It never went up to 25%. It was just an announcement. So it, it, actually, corporation, corporation tax is staying at 19%, which I think is absolutely the right thing to do. We need to be internationally competitive... Uh, on corporation tax, because you, you you know that's you know that pulls in businesses and makes multinationals skew their profits towards the UK as much as they can legally to uh, to save on tax. I've talked to CEOs and CFOs who've told me that um, they'll they'll make sure that the profits in their in their lowest tax uh, places uh, are as high as they can legally get them. So. Um, Sorry, I lost my thread there. The other thing I was going to say on taxes, I've just been looking into this, what they don't announce is that there are huge stealth taxes going on. So um, obviously uh, when you have 10% inflation, your VAT take go, uh, goes up, um, your payroll taxes uh, go up a lot, and we've got full employment, remember, which is very unusual um, um, right now. The other interesting thing, I've just been looking into this, is the personal allowances have been frozen for about the last four years. So it's stayed more or less at £12,500, the amount we can earn um, without before we start paying income tax. Now, usually in the past, that was always indexed with inflation or near to that each year. Um, but it's not being indexed at the moment. And I saw an announcement somewhere that they're planning on freezing it for another, I don't know, five years or something. This is a huge stealth tax, and it means that more and more people are paying higher Income tax as a percentage of their overall earnings as their earnings rise, particularly during a period of high inflation, more and more people are tipping over into 40% tax. Um, so actually, the things they don't announce are just as important as the things they do announce. And they're giving with one hand and taking away with with another. The only real significant pressure on the public finances that I can see is this blank check they've written for the energy bills. Now I think they had to do it; otherwise, you would have gone into an absolute economic depression. If because households were facing uh, bills rising to an average from an average of two thousand to six thousand at the beginning of twenty twenty three, which is completely untenable, that they couldn't let that happen. So I think they did the right thing. But it is it is a blank check. It's open ended. It could end up costing very little if uh, wholesale prices drop and they manage to do uh, contract directly with uh, with lower prices with the pr- makers of. Um, Re, uh, renewable energy and so on, which and nuclear, which of course shouldn't be linked to the price of gas. It's ridiculous that it is. So those supply side reforms, if they work, could really end up making the energy crisis gradually go away. Uh, but of course, a lot of it hinges, doesn't it, on Ukraine, we just don't know what the hell's going to happen there. So a big unknown. I don't know what what's going to happen, but I do think. Um, This wobble over the gilts. Oh, and it was pension derivatives, wasn't it? This LDI business. Now, who would have thought that um, pension funds would have taken out massive derivatives that suddenly turned them into forced liquidity sellers of pretty much anything when they got huge margin calls, when when long-term gilt yields went over a, a certain level? I mean, this was a real bolt from the blue, and it just shows, doesn't it, financial crises can happen anywhere uh, and, and at any time and come from things that are completely unforeseen. Now, um, I've been reading up about this and talking to friends who said it was, you know, basically a storm in a teacup that the Bank of England could just intervene, quickly bring the long guilt yields down and stop the the margin calls and the forced selling. But, you know, what, uh, uh, what, other, what other horrendous... Uh, issues are lurking in the financial system. This is the big problem with derivatives, isn't it? Nobody really knows how they all fit together or where the exposures are. What about counterparty risk? You know, that's what went wrong in 2007, 2008, wasn't it? You know, a sudden plunge in property prices in the US triggered a meltdown in CDOs and swaps and God knows what else, when nobody had, had, had worked out the ramifications of a plunge in property markets. And it then caused contagion. The banks then stopped lending to each other because they didn't know where the the counterparty risk actually was. And the whole system shook itself to pieces. And, I mean, I don't want to be uh, alarmist, but certainly this this pension liquidity crunch, LDI, uh, thing that's just happened really makes me worried that you've got widespread, massive plunges in... um, asset values right across the board. Bonds have plunged, equities have plunged, crypto has plunged. You, that's going to cause bad debts somewhere in the system. It's bound to. And we don't know where those are. And I think, you know, the thing I'm really worried about is that you get a major failure of a systemically important institution, which is what kicked off the, uh, the, big, the great financial crash in 2008. I think the first one that really made it uh, go tits up was um, Bear Stearns, which I think was in March. And then, of course, you had Lehman's was an AIG at the the climax of it all. And then, you know, belatedly, governments and and central banks realised they had to intervene to stop the system falling to pieces. Now, I think this time they'll intervene much, much quicker because they know what to do, which is exactly what happened with this Bank of England action. Um, So as long as the regulators, the central banks and the government nip problems in the bud, then we might be all right. But it's certainly, uh, you know, a risk of a wider financial meltdown is certainly there, isn't it? So, yeah, I'm, I'm a lot more nervous than I was. Anyway, that's long enough for today. Thank you again for listening. I really appreciate it. And it's fun doing these. And as I always, well, this, I think this is going to become my slogan now from now on. Uh, we'll make all the money back in the next bull market. You know, always hold you, hold on to that to that fact that's certainly the case with me i always lose money's money hand over fist in bear markets and then i make it back in the next bull market and we will again so don't get despondent put a a message up on stockopedia if you want if you want to get things off your chest the the, you know we're all having a a lousy time at the moment practically everybody and you know it happens that's life it'll get better so and we'll be fine in the long run so okay on that positive note i'm going to sign off thanks again bye